Aloha! You are listening to KNKRLP 96.1 FM Kohala. This is Holly Allgood. Welcome to Tutu's Talk Story. We have a very special guest today. Her name is Megan Smith, and she's an investigative journalist specializing in health issues, and she's also a documentary filmmaker. Hi, Megan. Hello, Holly. How are you? Good. How are you doing today? Fine, thank you. We always start Tutu's Talk Story with finding out where our guest hailed from. Where were you born and raised? Falls Church, Virginia. And what was that like? What kind of a community was it? So it's a metropolitan area of um, a suburb of Washington, D.C. So my father was in the military, and it was about 10 miles as the crow flies from central D.C., and uh, it was good. It was a, it was a good, good area to grow up in, a mid-century modern um, neighborhood, which I loved. <laughs> nice. And did you go to public schools? Went to a public school, yeah. I had a fine education, yep. <laughs> and uh, did you go off to college after that? I did. I, I went to Colorado College for my undergrad in biology, pre-med, and uh, about 10 years later, I received my, no, longer than that, gosh, oh my gosh, I think it was 20 years later, I received my master's in science at George Mason University. Mm-hmm. And how did you make those choices? Well, I wanted to be a doctor and um, since I was in seventh grade, and um, but I got sidetracked um, <laughs> right after I graduated from college. Um, my sister was a folk singer, and she was on the college circuit, And I was going to take a year off before going to med school. And uh, she said, well, why don't you just go on the road with me? So one year off turned into 10. And we ended up signing, uh, we got signed by a record label and produced by Doc and Merle Watson and ended up putting out four albums. And um, and so my mom's mom's an artist. My father's a mechanical engineer. So I have both sides of the brain working all the time. (laughs) And, um, and it sounds like you're an accomplished musician. Um, I am. I am a musician. Yeah. So <laughs> I did that for t- for ten years, and then I flipped over to my father's side of the brain and went back into the sciences and um, worked for a laboratory. I was their congressional liaison, and um, that's when I worked on my master's degree. And um, yeah, so I worked. I lobbied for renewable energy, which I know you know about in Hawaii. Yes. All about that. So, um, how did you yeah. make that big switch? That's quite a, a <laughs> leap there. It was kind of synch- synchronicity. I was on a camp trip trying to figure out what I wanted to do because I knew I was going to get out of folk singing. Um, my sister had a baby, and I was going through a divorce, and it was really complicated. So, I thought, you know, I, I want to do something. I want to get back to the environmental stuff I love and biology. And so, I was on this camp trip, and it serendipity this guy on the camp trip i said i'd love to work in renewable energy and he said i think i know somebody high up in the department of energy who works in that field and his friend was the right arm to the assistant secretary of (laughs) renewable energy so they just happened to have an opening at the national renewable energy lab um for congressional liaison so i got the job and off i went and that turned into another 10-year career doing doing that so, yeah. Wow. And how did you decide? <laughs> I always ask, how did you decide to go to college? Uh, it was kind of a foregone conclusion. Uh, my mother and father both, you know, um, believe, strongly believe in higher education. And I, I was the first one in my family to actually get a master's degree, which mm-hmm. tickled them pink. Mm-hmm. Um, but they just, you know, uh, my mo- my father wanted me to go to in-state um, UVA or something, which is a great school. Um, but I wanted to, I, my mom wanted me to go to pr- a private school, liberal arts. She's very into the liberal arts education. Mm-hmm. So she won the, she won the war and I ended up going to a liberal arts color college. Mm-hmm. So, um, but it's, you know, college education, if you can, if you can figure out how to afford it. And I was lucky that I was, you know, born into a family that could. Um, I know some people aren't so lucky, but boy, if there's any way you can scrape, borrow, whatever you have to do to get an education, it's very important, especially for women, I think. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you so it was you thought it was a worthwhile endeavor. I know a lot of people are questioning that these days. 
Oh, yes. I mean, I knew that I wouldn't be able to go to med school without an education, but it, it was sure. never even a, I never even questioned it. I just, my parents were both college educated and I just, I don't know, it just was never a something that I would not, you know, think about doing. So, well, yeah. it sounds like you're quite an unusual combination, traveling, traveling. What was that like, traveling as a musician for 10 years? <laughs> it was quite an experience. We went through two vans, their engines, you know, 300,000 miles apiece on them or something crazy. Um, and uh, we saw all of the United States. And um, it, was, it was fun. It was, it was great fun. It was exciting. We were young, you know. <laughs> And um, we actually got to go to the, I actually interviewed for the um, All Things Considered about this. We took a trip um, to the Soviet Union when it was still the Soviet Union because we went over in 1984 with a group called the um, U.S. Forum for Soviet Dialogue, U.S. US Dialogue, U.S.-Soviet Dialogue, some long name. And we were the cultural exchange group, my sister and I. So that was one of the highlights of my life being able to actually go behind the Iron Curtain and see what it was like for people then. What year was that? That was 1984. And what did, you know, what did you see? What was, what was a surprise and, and what were the highlights? I think, I think it was as, as reported through newspapers, I think they were, it was pretty spot on. You know, they had long lines for things, simple things um, that we take for granted such as toilet paper. That was a big deal. We all brought our own toilet paper. I remember that. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, we were followed. We'd go out, try and sneak away and go to lunch or something. We were followed. Um, I'm sure they were listening in, in on us, our conversations in the hotel room. We didn't have anything, or we didn't have any, you know, secrets to tell. But, mm-hmm. um, you know, it, it was exactly as you kind of hear about. So, mm-hmm. And the t- it was really tense because Reagan had just called them the evil empire, and they almost pulled our visas as we were sitting on the tarmac. We weren't sure if we were going to take off or not. We we're in Aeroflot, mm-hmm. and we were getting. We weren't sure we we're going to take off, but we did, and it was it was quite an experience. What was it like performing there? Uh, they were very into folk music. Um, if we strayed and played our own music, they didn't know what we were doing. But they loved to hear, you know, Beatles, and they'd sing along. They knew all the Beatles songs. And um, it, it was it was great. It was it was actually a commonality. You know, we'd have heated exchange during these little breakout sessions, talking about politics and stuff. And then mm-hmm. we, you know, all of a sudden get up on stage and start singing. And we at one point we had people were dancing. Mm-hmm. We kind of did this little impromptu dance, and everybody was dancing, having a great time. That was the last night we were there. And uh, you know, they're just like us. They're people. They like to dance <laughs> music and. And I have a question from the studio here. Did your duo have a name? We are called the Smith Sisters. The Smith Sisters. The Smith Sisters. It was mm-hmm. like the Smith Brothers cough mm-hmm. dropped. Sure. Just kind of happened. We People just started calling us that before we had a name, so it just kind of stuck. <laughs> well, it sounds like th- that was quite a highlight in Russia. Any other highlights wh- uh, while you were touring? <laughs> well, I think... Um, when we opened up for Doc and Merle Watson, um, we, and we also we opened up for Tom Paxton, his manager took a liking to us and signed us, and then we went on tour with Doc and Merle down in Florida, and um, Doc's a blind flat picker, well-known out of um, Boone, North Carolina. He's now deceased, and so is Merle, but um, that was great fun. We became very close with them. I guess it was probably the family thing. Mm-hmm. And uh, that was quite a thrill. And Merle produced our first two albums, and people like Mark O'Connor and Sam Bush, and you know all these superlative people played on our albums, which was quite a thrill. So mm-hmm. it was just the right right place at the right time, and you know everything fell into place. So well, it sounds we like left. that's a pattern of your life: right place, right time. <laughs> I mean, it, going it on a been. camping trip and winding up with a congressional <laughs> liaison job—that sounds pretty right place, right time. Yeah, I try and look for the signs, you know. it's. Um, I think you get through life, but I don't know, it just seems to fall into place better when you when you look for signs from above or whatever you want to mm-hmm. call it, serendipity. Mm-hmm. Um, it's pretty cool. Yeah, I've been lucky. So tell us about that job and how it was to go from folk singing to <laughs> working as a scientist. 
Um, well, so the job, I I really didn't know that much about Congress, you know, because I was a scientist. So um, I had to learn the ropes from the ground up and just started attending hearings and just kind of uh, watching what people were doing and talking to people. And um, I put together a Department of Energy tour of renewable energy, and that's where I met my um, second husband. He worked in the Senate. He was there for 35 years. He was a senior staffer, and we just fell in love, and off we went. Mm-hmm. Um, but see, So he was kind of my mentor. I mean, I knew a lot probably more about the Hill, and I got a quick learning um, from him. Mm-hmm. So that, was, that was great. Um, it was, Another it was lucky turn of events? Yeah, and, and the hill the hill worked better then. I mean, they they did background, you know, backdoor deals, um, you know, kind of good old boy network. Um, it just functioned better. It's when C-SPAN came on the floor, in my opinion, that changed a lot because then there was grandstanding. People took to their corners. Um, it just seems like that's, that was one of the turning points of the hill. So you're saying... So dysfunctional. Are you saying when the when it became televised that it became mm-hmm. more dysfunctional? Mm-hmm. Yeah, they wanted it to be transparent, which is great. But I guess what people didn't really realize, probably the members did, is that it was part of that, you know, behind-the-scenes stuff that went on that made the Hill operate back then. <laughs> right. Um, Where now you see you know, it as much more of a divide. Yeah. 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 Well, that's an so, interesting point. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So how long did you wind up doing that job, and what were the highlights of that job? So I was there on the Hill for 12 years, five years at the laboratory, and then after I got my degree, I started um, around that time. I, I worked. I went out on my own and um, got clients in biomass conversion to ethanol, which was, I, I was able to use my degree. And um, so I did that for another seven years. And so, t- so tell us for people who are listening what that means. What is biomass to ethanol conversion and what role did you play? So, so biomass is um, lignocellulose. So um, uh, not the corn kernels, which is but everything outside of the corn kernels, the, the outside kernel and the stalks and all that would be considered biomass. Um, wood, some wood, wood it would be con- considered um, biomass. Um, you know, all kinds of wheat, wheat grass and things that they grow. Um, Sugarcane, not the sugar part of it, but the rest of it is lignocellulosic. So, um, so it's certain plant parts that right. are. Uh, that can be converted to fuel. Correct. Mm-hmm. Correct. Yeah. So that's what we were we were um, helping getting my my clients had like pilot plants they were building and um, I so I lobbied Congress. I was a registered lobbyist then mm-hmm. at the laboratory. I was not. You're not allowed to lobby with you know um, government funds. But um, so I spun out. I felt like I could do more for the industry if I if I be you know there's nobody representing that industry. So I kind of made my own niche and um, loved it. I just loved the science behind it. I thought it was really interesting and um, yeah. So just so, interesting to see how the hill operates in general. <laughs> so you're tell us a little bit more about what a lobbyist does and what it means. Um, basically, you're educating uh, the Hill, congressional staffers or members. Um, you're educating them about whatever your clients um, are doing. Um, uh, you go up on the It's a lot of meetings, a lot of phone calls, um, a lot of networking. And um, I, I actually, unfortunately, the corn ethanol folks, um, some of them, the bigger guys, I'll, I won't mention any names, they, they didn't like what I was doing because we were cutting into their market. And so they were coming after me, so to speak, on the hill. <laughs> so so tell us what, what that means. How were you cutting into their market? Um, so, um, well, ethanol, you know, there's a, 
it depends. There was a lot of fuel parameter changes going on then, a big act that went through, and they were trying to expand the ethanol. But when you expand, when 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 somebody makes corn um, ethanol from corn, they're not just making, you know, it's not just ethanol. It's all these other DDGs, and it's um, lysine and all of these other, there's all kinds of chemicals they're making out of the plant. So, so other products come out besides the right. ethanol. Mm-hmm. Right. So if you push, if you if you mess up, if you expand this one market, it's going to mess up all the other markets. So okay. they were tightly trying to control the market, so they didn't want anybody, you know. And plus, we were going to get the ethanol subsidy, and that was going to cut into. They were threatened by that. I'm sure there was stuff going on behind the scenes of their companies. I don't even understand. So tell <laughs> um, us what know. that means that there was an ethanol subsidy. So ethanol at the time got a 10 cent subsidy at the pump. So mm-hmm. it was a way to incentivize, you know, oil companies get, they get a lot of subsidies. They're just hidden. They're more hidden. They're like drilling subsidies. Um, you know, they subsidize in other ways. But the in ethanol, this subsidies, uh, ethanol subsidy was kind of right in people's face. It was a 10, 10, cent, um, 10 cents a gallon. Subsidy. So, so, in other words, th- if at the pump somebody bought ethanol instead of p- pure petroleum gasoline, the government would pay ten cents per gallon. Yeah, it was a way to level the playing field. Uh-huh. So it would incentivize people to use like um, ethanol E eighty five vehicles, which is eighty five percent ethanol, fifteen percent mm-hmm. gasoline. Mm-hmm. So that's. You know, and the oil companies were always like, this isn't fair. It's like, well, wait a minute. You guys get so many subsidies. You know, where we even begin? So they never could. They always tried to make that argument, but it always kind of Mm -hmm. fell flat. So it sounds Um, like it was highly contested because obviously there's financial rewards for people. Yeah, so... The people that didn't like ethanol for whatever reasons would come after the subsidies saying this is a waste of taxpayers' money. And, um, you know, the oil companies were doing whatever they wanted to do behind the behind the scenes. And then you had all these weird politics between the big ethanol producers and, excuse me, big ethanol producers and the small guys and biomass. And it was complicated. I, I don't, it, it, it would take all day to explain all the nuances. But sounds complicated. Was, you know, yeah, it was. <laughs> Fuel is not a simple thing. <laughs> so it was your job, though, to to work for your clients who were promoting uh, ethanol. Correct. So I was trying to expand the ethanol market, which mm-hmm. would make room for my guys and get a, our foot in the door and p- pilot plants built and, you know, try and pave the way for, you know, we were trying to get farmers jobs. Jobs were going from the, you know, more, they were becoming more urban Mm-hmm. Instead of rural, and we were trying to create rural jobs, and you know, it just seemed like a win-win situation. But there, everybody, you know, <laughs> the thing about life, you know, everybody's always got a, something going on on the other side that they don't like, and they fight it. And right, that got that got old after a while. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, it must must have been a stressful job. It was stressful. It wasn't at first, but it became. I was like, wow, this isn't what I signed up for. You know, mm-hmm. when they were going out, they were going to Senator Daschle and telling him to take a bill, biomass out of a bill that was going through Congress. And he was the um, majority leader at the time. And I was like, really, you're going to go after my little guys? That's how threatened you are? So I knew that it was a big deal to them. I don't I don't know that I'll ever figure out all the nuances of what it was. Mm-hmm. It was probably just market share. Mm-hmm. Wow. So, mm-hmm. so it sounds like you went from this little job to having your own consulting firm and then becoming a lobbyist? Correct. And from there, um, I actually started to, um, I think therapeutically, I wanted to kind of work through what was going on. And so I started to write a screenplay about what I was seeing on the Hill. Um, Mm -hmm. It never got bought, but I I started writing screenplays and I, I found that I really loved it. And so after 12 years of writing or um, lobbying, I gave that up and I started to write screenplays, which Mm -hmm. was a blast. Mm -hmm. Um, I got close in a couple a couple of ones I got looked at. Sidney Pollock looked at one of mine. Um, but that actually led, so I did that, and I also went into, uh, so at this time, the well, other problem. Okay, I'm going to go slow ahead. you down because you're covering okay. a lot of ground here. 
And I'm just curious to, ju- I mean, you, you've you jumped from <laughs> quite a few uh, different <laughs> places. So you went from scientist to screenwriter. And how did you learn to write screenplays? I bought books on how to write. There's one book that said how to write a screenplay in 28 days or something like that. And I uh-huh. thought, oh, okay, I got 28 <laughs> days. And like, you know, five years later, I had a screenplay. But mm-hmm. um, um, So you educated yourself. Mm-hmm. I did it. It was self-education. But I also went to seminars and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, at the same time this was going on, I contracted Lyme disease. Mm. And that's what I'm segueing into that because that made it impossible for me to lobby. I was in a lot of pain. Mm-hmm. They couldn't figure out what was going on. I kept going, it's Lyme disease, but they wouldn't test me. The tests are very inaccurate, so I was coming back negative. Johns Hopkins, a year and a half after I contracted it, this is in 2000. I guess I contracted it in 2005, 2006. Mm-hmm. Johns Hopkins said, you have it. I know you have it. I can tell you have it. You have all the symptoms, he said, but some of these tests are inaccurate, so it's not showing up positive. And I was like, well, that stinks, you know, and so I couldn't get treated. I went into late line, and that made it very miserable. I don't know how much you have, if you have this on Hawaii or, or not, but um, it's not a good disease to have. And I had to climb my way out of the hole because he said, look, you're going to be on high dose um, antibiotics, IV the rest of your life off and on. I was like, wow, that's not the kind of life I want. <laughs> so I turned to alternative medicine and that's, that's now we're kind of segueing into my film. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was through alternative um, alternative medicine that I was able to cure myself of Lyme disease when conventional could not. Can you tell and us a little bit about what types of, so on the one side you were being offered antibiotics and IVs, what was it that you, what were the protocols on the alternative medicine side? It was a lot of immune system support. Um, I was doing acupuncture, and the one thing that really helped was electric medicine. Um, electric medicine is what, and I can't go in too deep about that because the FDA gets very nervous about this stuff, quite frankly. Mm. Um, but they're using stuff on Europe and some other places that are curing people of chronic diseases that conventional cannot cure with electric medicine. Hmm. And I can't say enough about it, but if you get on Google, you could probably figure out what I'm talking about. I'm talking, you know, you have to read between the lines. But okay. Um, so what you're telling so, us is you were involved. You found you had great success with alternative medicine that right now uh, is not supported by the FDA. No, they. I know that the government is kind of keeps tabs on what's going on, but um, the problem is we have this revolving door between um, Congress, well, the government, and um, big medicine. Um, people get jobs, then they go into government, then they go back out to big medicine, and so it's this, um, it's very incestuous, it's conflict of interest. Um, everybody, well, if you talk to any doctor, they, you know, they should know this is going on, they do on the Hill anyway. And unfortunately, that puts this conflict of interest is is um, taking its toll out on the patient. And um, I, you know, what, after what I was seeing, I thought, you know, I'm just going to have to hold up and take care of myself because I, you know, they they know of things that are kind of working, but they don't. You can't patent them. So mm-hmm. if pharma can't make money off of it, if big medicine can't make money off of it, they don't want anything to do with it, and they won't go out of their way to help the patient, and it's really sad, and that's where we are, and people need to know this is going on because chronic diseases are taking over our society, um, and anybody, any doctor will tell you this, too. I mean, the two things that conventional can do, emergency room we have down. We're great at emergency rooms, and we're great at surgeries, but chronic diseases, conventional, you know, pretty much across the board, they cannot, they can't cure. They cannot cure. They will give you a pill and say, here, this will make you feel better, but you might get side effects from it, which is what happened to me. Um, But they don't cure. And that's what alternative medicine is going into the crux of, okay, your immune system went haywire for some reason. Something you're doing, stress, what you're eating, what you're drinking, what's the air you're breathing, 
it, you know, you've got most people have some kind of suppression of their immune system. That's why they get a chronic disease, the autoimmune diseases that have gone haywire. Um, and so can, can, could you also mm-hmm. tell us what you define as a chronic disease? Because I think some of our listeners may be wondering, what does that mean, chronic disease? Sure. So all the autoimmune um, diseases, lupus, um, uh, reflex sympathetic dystrophy, um, uh, diabetes, uh, you know, a- any autoimmune condition, um, anything you can't get over is chronic, you know, um, irritable bowel syndrome, you know, there's all kinds of things, acronyms, and, and any of these syndromes, generally, that are termed syndromes, is generally um, going to have, they're going to be chronic diseases. And for example, you so, had Lyme disease, which you were being told, in essence, was going to be a chronic disease for you. But you were able right. to turn to alternative medicines and, and have a cure? Right. Because um, once you go, uh, what is the rule of thumb? I think it's after you, if they don't catch it in time and treat it with antibiotics, and it's very easy to treat with antibiotics if you do it long enough. You have to do it long enough, which is probably about a month or so. Um, you go into what's called chronic disease, chronic Lyme, and it, late Lyme, chronic Lyme, and it's it's not fun. It's not fun. You're exhausted. You're, you know, everything's just terrible. <laughs> painful. For me, it was painful because I had, I had um, some of the co-infections, which is pretty common. Um, yeah, so that's, uh, I just started studying up. I've got a whole bookshelf of, on alternative medicine and chronic diseases and stuff, and I just, I just had to figure out a way. I just was not going to put up with my life being like that. The rest, you know, I just. Well, and I, rem- I, I, for quite a while, lived right across the street from Lyme, Connecticut, where the disease is named uh, from. And uh, I remember in the late 80s when people were starting, people on the street I lived on, which was the dividing line between Salem, Connecticut and Lyme, Connecticut, started having weird symptoms, including I remember mm. there was a teenager down the street who they thought he was having a heart attack, but he, he actually had Lyme disease. So I know initially wow. people had a really hard time diagnosing that mm-hmm. what Lyme disease was. Yep, yep. And it's still very hard to diagnose it. Um, the, the tests are inaccurate. In fact, I wrote, I called up the Washington Post, and I said, look, people out in my, I live out in Rappahannock County in Virginia, a rural area about an hour from D.C., and I said, people out here have, Lyme disease is going crazy. All of our pets have it. We all have it, and all the doctors are telling us we don't. They don't. We don't have it. They don't know what we're talking about. And and I looked it up, and the tests are inaccurate. And I said, they said, well, what do you want to do? I said, well, can I write an article? I'm a writer, <laughs> so I wrote an article for them. Um, they turned down the larger article that I thought was as, as important, and that was that it was being underreported by doctors because doctors didn't know it was so prevalent. Because the testing was so bad, can so you tell? Like this, can you tell our audience how people get Lyme disease? So, oh yeah, sure. Um, so it's a tick, a tick-borne disease. So the little um, deer tick generally is the one that carries it, but there's other ticks also that carry these other diseases. They deem they're similar to Lyme with different, a little bit different um, uh, symptoms. Uh, rocky, rocky spotted fever is that's that's one of, they would consider, I guess, a co-infection or also a tick-borne disease anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, so typically, it's very prevalent in areas with wild deer. Is that accurate? Deer, yeah, and actually the vector is actually the white-footed mouse, I came to find out. But mm-hmm. um, but it feeds on the mice, and it drops off, and it jumps on the deer, and then it can move out. That, that's how it spread. That's how it spread all through the U.S. and spread now over to... Somehow it jumped across the ocean and made its way over to Europe, and it's spreading all over the place. And people aren't talking about it, but this is, it's an epidemic. After I wrote this article um, saying that CDC was underreporting, they said, oh, yeah, whoops, sorry. It's more like three, at least 300,000 a year that are contracting this, and it is epidemic. And, and then the doctors started to take notes, but it's still very hard to diagnosed because it, it's the great mimicker they, they say it, it acts like all all these different diseases so 
And when anybody talks, I'm talking to somebody and they go, I have this thing and they can't figure out what it is. I'm like, get tested for Lyme disease for Pete's sake. (laughs) Just do it. Right. (laughs) And so for anybody listening, uh, could you tell us what the initial symptoms are? Um, Generally speaking, it starts out flu-like symptoms. Um, I had, that's what I had, but it went on and on and, you know. Well, and isn't there a skin reaction that many people have? sure. Yeah, about 60% of people have a, um, a what they call the bullseye rash. It's a, mm-hmm. It literally looks like a bullseye. It's a red rash, and sometimes it gets a white center within a red dot, so it looks like a bullseye. Mm-hmm. You don't always, but you don't always have to have that. I didn't have that, and I, did, I tested negative. So I was a, I call, it, I call it the crack people. We fall through the cracks. <laughs> <laughs> and um, then we don't get treated. And nobody would give me these antibiotics. I kept going, I know it's Lyme disease. Please just give me antibiotics. They're like, can't do it. Sorry. Right. You're not testing positive. And then so finally Johns Hopkins, this expert, gave me the, um, he gave me the uh, antibiotic. But, you know, now I was a year and a half into it. And I got this thing called the Herxheimer reaction, which means you get, there's a die-off and a bunch of toxins die-off. It's killing the bug, and you get the toxins released, and you feel terrible. And I said, Doc, something weird's going on. I feel worse. He goes, that confirms that Lyme disease, as far as I'm concerned, you're having the Herxheimer reaction. So um, anyway, very difficult, very difficult to diagnose a lot of times. Um, We're talking to Megan Smith. She's an investigative journalist specializing in health issues and a documentary filmmaker. We're going to take a break to do some public service announcements. And uh, Megan, stay with us. We'll be right back. Sure. Kohala High School Class of 2021 will have their graduation ceremony Saturday, May 22nd, beginning at 2 p.m. with a private drive through commencement at Kohala High School. Follow Kohala High School on social media for information on a live stream of the event for friends and family. And join us afterwards along Okone Pule Highway to cheer on the graduates as they promenade from Kohala High School to the middle school. Congratulations, Class of 2021. You found a way. Women's Voices on KNKRLP 96.1 FM Kohala with your host Isla Allgood. I'm proud to say that I've been doing this show now for six years and I still find amazing songs and spoken words by female artists from right here in Kohala and around the world. Tune in to 96.1 FM or stream live at www.knkr.org. Aloha, Tali All Good on Tutu's Talk, Talk Story here on KNKR LP 96.1 FM Kohala. Our special guest today is Megan Smith. We've been talking with her about uh, chronic illness. Uh, she, in particular, had Lyme disease had issues getting it diagnosed and treated, and she turned to alternative medicine. So, Megan, tell us more. Uh, So, I guess I'll just segue, if you don't mind, into um, after I, unfortunately, after I I was just coming out of the Lyme and fixing that, my chronic disease up using alternatives, um, my husband contracted lung cancer, And uh, I begged with him to try alternatives because he was stage four by the time they they caught it. Um, And, you know, that's not a good diagnosis. That conventional can't do much for you. And I knew that the treatments were really harsh. And he just didn't understand alternatives. And um, so he took the conventional road and 
he was gone after two rounds of chemo. Mm. And um, that kind of led me, and three of my girlfriends, very good friends of mine, passed from cancer. Their cancer, breast cancer, returned after 10 years of being in remission. And I thought, you know, I want to do something in the the cancer world. Um, So I... I, I, ha- I figured that uh, nobody, none of the big papers were going to print any stories that I printed up on this stuff because it's just because just because of big medicine um, advertising all that. So so I said, you know, uh, I bet I could put out a documentary film fairly easily, and you know, documentaries are basically journalism. Um, and so I grabbed the cameraman, Serendipity. I just happened to meet this gentleman who wanted to get into videography. He was already a uh, photographer, and we went on the road. I just bought some camera equipment, and off we went. We jumped on a plane, went to Europe, um, met a bunch of, you know, interviewed a lot of people. Unfortunately, the doors were not opening as, as wide as I thought they would, like the Swiss clinics and other people are saying, you know, we have to be careful. They're, they, they are watching us now. <laughs> um, big medicine, whatever, um, has so, kind of got there. Yeah, got I was going to say, so how did you decide to go to Europe, and what is a Swiss clinic? So the, the um, they're kind of well-known around the world, Mexico, Mexican clinics and Swiss clinics for well-being. Um, treating chronic diseases with with non-conventional sources mm-hmm. um, and I, I knew about them I also I wanted to hit as many of the countries as I could get different perspectives um, but I I decided to go to Europe first um, because I thought they were the most um, progressive in the alternative mm-hmm. area Mexico would have worked also and we finally got to Mexico after a bit but um, so I just set up set up a tour, but I, I wasn't I wasn't able to get as many interviews as I thought, and nobody in the conventional world would talk to me at all. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so they wanted nothing to do with me. <laughs> so um, yeah, so but we were able to get enough enough footage. People were brave. There were some brave practitioners that would talk to me on camera. And, and what say stuff. what types mm-hmm. of things were they doing in these clinics? Well, again, it goes back to supporting the immune system. Um, generally speaking, they change your diet. They look at they look at you know they tell you get the stress out of your life. But when you I didn't know this. Well, stress is bad for you. I think we know that. But the reason it is is it puts your body into fight fight and flight um, constantly, and you you in, you um, produce this stuff called cortisol. Mm-hmm. And from there, it triggers all of your hormones, your whole everything in your body just starts to go crazy. It's like a cascade effect. So if you stay in this cortisol, pumping out too much cortisol too, too, for too long, your body just starts to implode. And that's when you're really vulnerable. It's then your immune system goes south, which like 70, 80% of it's in your intestines, your um, small intestines. And once that all starts to cascade, it's you got to reverse it or you're going to most likely you're going to come down with something. <laughs> Your body's telling you to slow down. Mm-hmm. So um, they look at what your lifestyle is. They'll change that. And um, they'll put you, one of the things I saw across the board was uh, these practitioners were using high dose um, vitamin, high dose vitamin C intravenously. Mm-hmm. And that's just, a, it's an amazing vitamin. If it, You can't get enough of it orally because, because it gives you um, diarrhea, but intravenously they can really pump it up, and that stuff cures all kinds of stuff. And it's too bad we're not using it, but again, it's not patentable. And but that's kind of one of the cornerstones I saw across all of these um, practitioners, alternative practitioners, was they were using that on their clients, and they were so doing was, that to up the immune system. Yeah. It, mm-hmm. it kills bugs, it kills microbes, and um, just, you know, revs up your immune system. And I heard that they are over in China, I, I believe I read that they were using it on COVID and having some success. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes you have to you have to put steroids in at the same time, which is kind of counterproductive. But um, anyway, I heard, I heard that. I um, haven't confirmed it. But um, yeah, so anyway, 
the, uh, there was just certain things, but those are kind of the basics about how, and they're, they're reversing cancer. Um, tumors were melting away, you know, not every time you got to get the stress out of your, your life. I had one doctor say, if you don't get the stress out of your life, um, it's, it's almost impossible to reverse a chronic disease. Hmm. So, and that's hard to do because we're all stressed out right now. (laughs) Yeah. Well, and stress, people respond, are are stressed by different things. I I notice. Mm-hmm. I see. You know, one member of your family may not like uh, people interactions where somebody else thrives on it. So it's 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 right. it's hard to say. It's something very personal. Right. I think. Yeah, there's some good, good. I call them good stress versus bad stress. But mm-hmm. if you know it's a bad stress, you know you need to try and get out of it as fast as possible, or it can take you down. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, can- the cancer, studying the cancer world, I, so I was putting together this documentary and the edit, editing it down, and I realized that 10 minutes of the 90-minute film was on breast cancer screening mm-hmm. because I had a doctor tell me, I didn't know this, but the mammography has a lot more radiation than they're telling us. And the reason is because the doctors, it's not the doctor's fault, um, they're... I don't know who, where the soundbite is coming from. I would like to find out. But they, when, you, when a woman asks how much radiation is in a mammogram, generally speaking, the doctor will say it's as much as flying across the United States. It's the same amount of radiation you get flying in a plane. And that, what they're talking about there is scattered radiation. And the doctors don't even know this because I've, I've talked to several of them and they had no idea. They're talking about scattered radiation from the mammogram versus the absorbed radiation that's going into the breast, that's what can create cancer years later. That's called radiation-induced cancer. And the mammogram machines, have they have a lot higher radiation. Um, in fact, the International Atomic Energy Agency, on their website, it actually says they call it relatively high radiation, not low-dose radiation, which is what everybody calls it low dose, they're talking about the scattered radiation. So, the you know, the Atomic Energy Agency, they're the radiation physicists. They understand radiation. Radiologists get some training, but they're mostly, they're mostly taught how to read the radiographs, the x-rays. And, but the radiation physicists who understand radiation. And that's how I finally nailed that one because I, you know, was hearing that it was higher radiation, but I wanted to really ferret that out and find out what was going on. Mm-hmm. So, and the other thing, women should know, um, so just, I, I really, I, I'm just trying to educate women on knowing things before they go in to have a mammogram. If you're going to have one, know, know what you're getting into because we're not really given informed consent, which is a legal term. Um, we're not, because I don't think the doctors know. You know, I don't, I don't know what's going on, where the disconnect is, but it's the, the radiologists, the gynecologists are kind of separated from the radiation physicists unless they're talking to them. And so this disconnect, unfortunately, we're part of that disconnect and we're not getting the real information. So can you go um, back the, a minute <laughs> and tell sure. us what you found? You said that a, a lot of the f- coverage that you found when you came back from these this travel trip where you were taking, doing research and getting footage was based sure. on breast cancer. And what what did you see on that footage? Okay, so um, so I was actually looking into alternative cancer therapies when I went on that European the European trip. Mm-hmm. But when I was when I came back to the U.S., I interviewed. Well, actually, I interviewed one Swiss doctor um, at that time and. He was telling me about, he was actually was a radiologist, and he was a radiation safety expert. Mm-hmm. So they're going to know about the same information as a, uh, as a radiation physicist. And he was telling me it's, it's not low-dose radiation. He kept saying that over and over and over, and I kept saying, but all of these websites, American Cancer Society, FDA, all of these websites say it's low-dose radiation. He's like, it's not low-dose radiation. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm like, okay, i got to research this. So that's, that's where I was just explaining all that and how I found out. Okay. And um, they were treating, so instead of using uh, 
mammograms, what were they doing in Europe? So, um, so uh, all right, so women, let me approach it this way. Women with dense breasts, 90% of us have some form of breast density. But they, this is important to know because I, I have dense breasts and I didn't know what the heck it meant. I said, as long as my mammography is okay, I don't care what my breasts look like. Well, you should care because um, when your breast is dense, it means your breast is composed of fatty tissue, and then there's this other stuff called fibroglandular. The gland, the fibrous stuff is connective tissue, and the glandular part is the milk duct and things like that. Okay, so it's, it's all different material. This epithelial tissue is in the that lines the glandular part of the breast. And the reason I'm telling you that is because it's important to understand the glandular tissue absorbs more radiation, and it's called, and they call it radiosensitive, which means it's more susceptible to radiation-induced cancer. So the higher density your breast, the more possibility of getting radiation-induced cancer from the mammogram. And this is the strangest thing. When a radiologist sees that you have dense breasts, they're standing back behind the screen and they're cranking up the radiation so that they can see through that dense breast tissue and differentiate it from a cancer. So they're they're doing exactly opposite of what we're doing exactly opposite of what we should be doing for dense breast women. These women should be getting ultrasound. And this is what the literature is pointing to and they're and the the cell biologists and some of the radiation physicists are screaming in this literature going, we need to really look at this. Women are getting induced breast cancer from, from radiation. We need to come up with a different strategy. Um, but those, don't, those articles are not seeing, uh, everything in my film is, is based on the medical literature. I have citations all through it. I didn't put anything in the film that wasn't in the medical literature. So you and, wound up doing a film on educating women about Breast cancer screening. Breast cancer screening. And mm-hmm. it's called boob colon the war on women's breasts. B O O B S boob. And where <laughs> do you, and where can people see this film? So um, I was I um, had a distributor sign up my film Cinema Libra Studio out of L A. And the website you can find it on is boobsdoc.com. B O O B S doc.com and um, that's where you can find it and you can rent it or buy it or whatever and um, it's an hour and a half of all kinds of information you'll be I was surprised by all of this information I thought if I don't know this I'm sure most women don't either Mm -hmm. Um, and I've come to find out they don't but I think it's really important before you go in and get breast cancer screening if you want to get a mammogram, that's fine. Just know what, what the risks are and find out what your breast makeup is. And the alternative to get ultrasound and also um, there's a, it's a, it's a test of physiology versus anatomy. And it's called thermography. And it uses an um, a infrared camera to pick up heat, which is inflammation in your breast, this, this tool that they have. And um, you can find a thermographer. They're they're fairly easy to find on the internet. There are better ones. You got to look for a good one, and I'll tell you how to do that in a second. But th- what I like about thermograms is um, it picks up inflammation. Uh, cancer is an inflammatory disease, so before the tumor forms, you're going to have inflammation in that breast, and you're going to be able to pick that up. When a, if somebody knows what they're doing, they're going to be able to see that on a thermogram. And you can change your lifestyle at that point. Change your get the stress out of your life. Change your food, your water, your you know get clean up your air in your house, and change your lifestyle and reverse that. Get on some good supplements. Find a good naturopathic doctor. That's that's what I do. Um, and you can reverse it so it doesn't turn into cancer. And that's what I like. It's really a preventative tool. This is one of the doctors that was telling me this on, on my... So you uh, were you were saying there's a way to find good ones and, and separate the good from the not so good. <laughs> yeah. So um, they should... One thing I would do, um, I would ask them, how much did you pay for your equipment? <laughs> 
Um, because if they're using a $500 camera, uh, it's not going to be good results. You have to use a good camera. The camera should run around five grand, and the software that goes with it is between twenty to thirty thousand. If they don't have a good software, they're not going to get good results. Mm-hmm. So you want somebody who's taking this seriously because you're talking about your life here. Now, can um, you tell us will insurance pay for this, or will insurance pay for an ultra? I, I know I've personally gone for right. mammograms, and they'd say, "We'll come back. We want to do an ultrasound." Can you just skip the first part and ask for an ultrasound? No, unfortunately, um, mammograms are the only primary screening tool right now. This is laid out by Medicare and the insurance companies. They will not pay for an ultrasound unless you've already had a mammogram, and that's what a lot of women get upset about because they don't want the radiation, especially if they have high-density breasts. The ultrasound is much better. That's what the literature points to. Mm-hmm. The mammogram is, is going to miss a lot of those, like half of them. So Medicare's the not paying for that. And what about the Medicare's thermography? Not. No, thermography is not thermography is not covered um, unless you have like Aflac, or an, that's my understanding through a thermographer. If you get, have Aflac or something like that, an adjunctive, adjunctive, I guess, insurance, um, they might pay for it. But okay. and the one the woman I go to is about two hundred and seventy five dollars, mm-hmm. and you can go, you know, every year, every other year, however you wanna, how often you wanna screen, mm-hmm. and um, ultrasound. And you have to look around. You might be able to find a diagnostic center that can do it for a hundred dollars, maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, but you should have both of them because ultrasound can find stuff that the thermogram can't, and vice versa. So it's a good combination. And this is in my film. I'm putting this forward. Uh, I actually presented this to the American Cancer Society, Otis Brawley, after he left ACS, and he said it was of it was of interest and we should study it. And so, I'm hoping I can get people interested in this and maybe Congress and see if we can go forward with studying it. It needs to be studied. This protocol. Because, you know, medicine won't change unless it's studied. <laughs> mm-hmm. So you're saying right now there's not enough. Uh, research done that would compel them to perhaps have Medicare pay for it? No, you have to have the studies. It's got to be randomized, blind, double blind, you know, all that Mm -hmm. um, study stuff that ends up in the literature. And government, uh, you know, probably government would put it on. It would be, I could just see it visualized thermography and ultrasound set against mammography and see which one you know, bubbles to the top. Maybe they'd be the same, maybe they wouldn't. But if you want to avoid radiation, you know, which a lot of women should because their 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 breast makeup, that's what the cell biologists are screaming, saying, we got to stop this madness. This is crazy. Mm-hmm. Um, that's, we should give women the option. I mean, it's crazy that they're not giving us the option. We have to pay for it out of pocket. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So tell us one more time if people are interested in learning more about you or the film, what's the best way to do it? So the website is boobsdoc.com, B-O-O-B-S-D-O-C, as in documentary, .com. And that will take you to all the information about the film and um, where you can stream it or rent it. And how long has it been out? Uh, It came out in October last year. Mm-hmm. Right in the middle of COVID, mm-hmm. <laughs> which did not help. Mm-hmm. Um, I also did want to mention there's a woman. She's in the film, Dr. Gloria Jackson. Um, she's a, my she's one of my practitioners. She's a nat- natural doctor, but she's a medical doctor. Mm-hmm. Um, and she's there actually on the Big Island, mm-hmm. and she's in um, Waimea at the Aloha Health Clinic. And she's actually in the film, and she she's wonderful. She's just um, I learned a lot from her. She, she, she's been in the middle of conventional medicine. She knows, you know, what the pitfalls are, and she's a great practitioner. And um, she actually got me off of my. I was on three medications when I went to her, mm-hmm. and I said I got to change something. And so she, she did some magical stuff with her supplements, and um, I'm off all three medications, and I'm a lot healthier for it. So mm-hmm. nice. So what's next for you, yeah. Megan? Well, so I'm going to keep plugging, plugging along with this film, um, trying to get some screenings now that COVID is calming down. Um, and then I would, if anybody's, yeah, anyway, so I can't say that. Um, <laughs> um, 
And I'm going to finish editing my first film that I started on alternative cancer therapies. Mm -hmm. And I hope to get back to editing. I'm about halfway through editing. I hope to finish that sometime next year. But all my energy is kind of going into promoting this film right now. Mm -hmm. Getting the word out. out. You think you'll Mm -hmm. go get back into maybe lobbying as a result of this film? Um, I might. I need some women behind me to, mm-hmm. you know, get it. I can be the lone voice, but that's probably only going to carry so far. Mm-hmm. So I need women to, um, you know, get educated. Um, there's great books out there, but, um, and I'm also writing a book on this, by the way. Um, I'm trying to get an agent right now. Mm-hmm. So that'll have even more information that's in the film. But I, I hope that medical doctors also take the time to watch the film or read my book because... Mm-hmm. It's 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 never been written the way that the format that I'm writing it, and I'm going deeper into the literature, but yet it's going to be layman's terms, so it's going to be readable for the patient. Um, I just felt like people needed a, a good reference if they wanted to learn more about this. Well, Megan, thank you so much for being our guest today. I really appreciate your time. This again thank has you. been. We're talking with Megan Smith, investigative journalist specializing in healthcare issues and documentary filmmaker, uh, Boobs War Against Women's Breasts. Thank you so much. I'm going to wish everybody uh, a wonderful rest of the week. Aloha, and we'll see you next week. This is Holly Allgood with Tutu's Talk Story on KNKRLP 96.1 FM Kohala. Aloha. Oh, oh, oh.